Yeah, so if you're four years old to second grade, now is the time to leave. If you're older than that, you're stuck. Well, thank you very much for praying for me over the week. Um, I got on an antibiotic. I'm doing much, much better. Um, however, now my children are sick. So uh, I think we, my family is currently serving as Satan's personal playground. Um, I think my kids have hand, foot, and mouth, but I think we've got probably 10 other kids in the church that have it. Um, so that's not just new to us. That's, there are a lot of us. Well, four weeks ago, we started in the book of Jude. We opened up this little itty-bitty tiny book. It's interesting. This week I read on a blog site that according to BibleGateway.com, the book of Jude is the fourth least read book in the Bible. Any guesses what the least read book of the Bible is? Leviticus didn't even make the top ten. Obadiah, apparently, is the least looked up book in the, new, in the Bible. So maybe we'll go to that one these days. So we opened up the book of Jude, and we, we started to consider, who is this guy Jude? And, and as we considered Jude, you, you find out that Jude is actually a brother of Jesus. That, that, that Jesus has two brothers, Jude and James, both guys who write New Testament books. And, and it's, it's fascinating to consider that, because if you walk through the New Testament, you find that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him while he was alive. And then the beginning of the book of Acts, you find that these guys have faith. And what happened? What tremendous thing must have happened that brought these guys to faith? And then Jude writes this little itty-bitty book to encourage the church. 25 short verses in which he offers six imperatives. Six things he says, I want you to consider this. I want you to do this. He starts in verse 3 by challenging the church. It's actually, I think, verse 4, but it's 3 and 4 that fall together. I want you to contend. He says, I I wanted to write to you to tell you about the greatness of our salvation, but instead I have to urge you to contend for the gospel. It's probably one of the most known parts of this book, other than this 24 and 25 we're going to open up into today. He challenges them to contend for the gospel. And last week, there were five more imperatives that come out of that. When he challenges them again to to remember. Remembering is to recall the fact that as you contend for the gospel, that there's going to be a tremendous challenge to that. There's going to be opposition to that. And Jesus wanted you to know that from the very, very beginning. Build yourselves up in the holy faith. Pray. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait. And then finally, he challenges you to pursue people. He looks at a number of different ways in which you would engage culture. And that's the entire thrust of this book. Now, now Jude's going to put it in the context of a couple of things. We looked at verses 1 and 2. Jude wants you, if you're going to contend for the gospel, initially to put it in the context of finding your identity and your authority completely in Jesus. If you don't find your identity in Jesus, it's hard to contend for the gospel. If you don't find your authority in Jesus, it's hard to contend for the gospel. We kind of made that pretty apparent four weeks ago. The the challenge to make your identity Jesus is to say when you walk into a context or a culture of people who don't agree with you, and and you're going to live out your faith and they're going to challenge you on that, you're going to take it really personally except when it's about Jesus. 
Because when it becomes about him, it's not about you anymore. And so it becomes easier for us to give our lives away. So Jude immediately wants us to, to contend for the gospel, but to do so living out our lives in Jesus Christ. But he also wants us to live out our lives in light of judgment. That there are people in the church who are going to live a life in such a way that is not going to testify to Jesus Christ. It's going to testify to the satisfying desires of the world. Jude says it can't be that way. Your life can testify to one thing. Don't make it the world. And in fact, he also challenges us that, that there's a reality of judgment that has to be taken into consideration. And that if we're going to really contend for the gospel, we have to appreciate that we're contending for a purpose. That as you engage somebody, you're engaging a soul. You're engaging somebody that needs to see an accurate representation of Jesus Christ. You're engaging somebody who needs to see a, a, a proclamation and a demonstration of the gospel so that they'd have a realistic appreciation of what a Christian looks like and what the church is supposed to look like. That that's why we were left here, so that our lives would bear witness to Jesus. So in the midst of all of that, we come to this very end, this 24 to 25, we get to this doxology. Now, the doxology is by far the most known part of Jude. And if we were to read it outside of Jude, we'd certainly walk away with an understanding. But I think, I think having walked through the last 23 verses into this last section, the last 23 verses are going to really have to impact what these last two verses say, aren't they? Because context is huge. Jude just wasn't writing a doxology in space. He didn't just sit down and go, I'm going to write, okay, now I should write something before that because just by itself doesn't work. Let's, yeah, I'll just put some 23 verses together and yes, now I've got a book. No, he, he, he kind of writes it as a culmination of everything else that's gone on to the book. So let me read it. Verse 24. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. As you come to the end of this book, as Judas kind of encapsulating what does it look like to contend for the gospel, he comes to the very end and he says, and now to him. Now having considered everything that you're going to have to endure, now considering the fact that there are going to be challenges, now considering the fact you're going to have to remember all that Jesus told, foretold all you're going to walk through, remembering that this is going to be really hard, it's going to just challenge you. It's going to grate on you. Now let's take our eyes off of the challenge and let's look up. Let's look up to God. Let's raise our chin away from the, the challenges and the grittiness of being on this earth. And now to him, let's pick up our chin and look high. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
Now, it's a fascinating thing because I think a lot of times we would walk through this and people would say, well, he's able to keep me from stumbling. Man, that's awesome. That means I won't sin anymore. That means I won't do this anymore. That means I won't fall into that anymore. It doesn't mean that. Think about what this passage has been telling you. If you were to walk in such a way where you're contending for the gospel, and if you were to even look through verses 21, 22, 23, if you're going to engage people who are engaged in sin, and you're going to engage them in such a way that you get close to them, such that in 23 it says, saving others by snatching them from the fire to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So when he says... And 24, who is able to keep you from stumbling, he's not just putting out this statement that just says, well, he'll keep you from falling, as if he's this cosmic safety net who just walks around, oh, gotcha. Now, the challenge here is that he's actually demonstrating for you that as you, as you walk out, as you carry on your faith contending for the gospel, that he's going to preserve your witness. He's going to carry you. He's going to walk with you through that. He's going to prevent you from falling into sin as you step out in faith further and further into the culture to engage it. He's going to keep you from falling flat on your face. Well, to do that, for him to keep you, you found that this keeping has been incredibly crucial in this passage, haven't you? It starts out in, in verse 1 and 2 telling you you'll be kept for Jesus Christ. It tells you to keep in the love of God. And now he's going to keep you from stumbling. Do you, do you see how you're sustained by the Holy Spirit through all of this? Do you see how Jesus has you in the palm of his hand? Now he is going to keep you from falling. This idea of keeping you from falling. It's prevalent, prevalent throughout the Psalms. It's prevalent throughout the Psalms. In fact, if we were to walk through the Psalms, we could find a handful of them where it would walk us through different places where the Psalms talk about this. Psalm 73, 2 says this, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Psalm 91, 12, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Psalm 116, 8, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Psalm 121, 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. God will sustain you. If you're going to contend for the gospel and you, you have to ask yourself, how am I going to do this? The answer is God will sustain you. He will keep you. He will keep you from stumbling. He will sustain you the whole time. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and, and isn't this a glorious and, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To present you blameless. Now, if, if God is going to sustain you, he's going to keep you. Now he's going to present you 
blameless. So it's actually going to show you the culmination of his keeping. That not only is he going to keep you in such a way that he's going to stain you, he is now proclaiming to you that he's going to present you blameless. Now this is an extraordinary picture. Before the presence of his glory, This is to say that this is an eschatological picture of you standing before the throne room of God. That you walk into the eternal throne room of God and he looks at you blameless. And you have great joy. Now that's incredible. I don't know how often you've conceptualized that moment where you enter into the presence of God. But when I think about it, I think about me being a groveling little baby. I just want him to do this, and I really tried to do it, and I was just trying to hold on to Jesus, and I don't know what happened. Like my five-year-old. But this isn't the picture that the New Testament's painting for us, is it? No, Jesus is actually going to keep you. He's going to keep you from stumbling and is now going to present you blameless before the presence blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, if we were to walk you through all of this, you have to understand that Jude grew up Jewish. As a Jewish man, he's going to use some Jewish language, things that ought to elicit some feelings out of us. Seeing that most of us aren't Jewish, we're not going to have the feelings elicited for us, so I'm going to have to put them in you. Okay, so when he says, I'm going to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, you have to appreciate that to be presented blameless becomes sacrificial language. And and that if we were to walk you through your scriptures and you'd see this kind of sacrificial language, you immediately find it in the book of Leviticus, where you have these sacrificial offerings that are given. Now, there's an extraordinary moment that happens in Leviticus that I think would really challenge how we look at sin now. Because if, if we had to, upon giving in to sin, bring in a blameless sheep, a sheep without any blemish, this is what happens in the book of Leviticus. And we had to grab that little boy by its ears, and he's going, bah! and we had to look at it. Because this is what happens in the Old Testament. You have to look at the sheep, and your sin is then imputed into that sheep. That, that sheep is now taking over your sinful character before it's slaughtered on behalf of your sin and its blood is spilled for you. Now there's a pretty good argument that every time we sinned, we had to kill a sheep, we'd sin less. Because it'd start to impact us economically. That's a whole nother conversation. But there's this picture of this sheep that gets presented and you holding its ears and having your sin imputed into it. And that picture gets replicated at the cross where the Savior is on the cross and your sin is now imputed into the Savior. So we like to talk a lot about how his righteousness is imputed into us. And it's absolutely accurate. What we miss is that at the cross, our sin is imputed into the Savior. It's that same moment where we could look Jesus in his eyes, grab him by the ears, and he takes the blame for our sin. 
Now, when you find this moment again in Scripture, you find it when you stand in front of God in eternity. Why? Because God in eternity, because of Jesus Christ, does not find you with blame. He doesn't find you with a blemish. This is so significant because it doesn't mean you're not guilty. It doesn't mean you haven't done anything wrong. There'll be nobody who stands before the the almighty God sinless. There won't be one of us who will. But we'll stand there because our sin will have been imputed into the Savior. And so we'll be able to stand there blameless, without any blemish. There's this richness of the sacrificial language because the lamb would have already been given on our behalf. So if you were to stand blameless before God, blameless before his glory with great joy, it's not because you're innocent. It's because you're forgiven. It's because your sin was imputed into Jesus Christ at the cross. And likewise, his righteousness was imputed into you. So that when you get there in that moment, you stand before God the Father and the weight of his glory, we like to say he sees his son and not you. He sees you. He just sees his son's righteousness in you. He doesn't see your sinfulness because it was imputed into something else. He sees your righteousness. So as Jude is putting this before you, he's declaring to you, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and who's able to present you blameless before his glory with great joy, Jude is wanting to testify to you that this God who is able to keep you as, as you're going to contend for the faith, if you're going to go out and engage people in ways that get messy, in ways that challenge you, in ways that you wonder, man, did that defile me? I don't even know. God wants you to know in the process of that, he is keeping you in such a way that he will preserve you because you're his. He's keeping you in such a way because he doesn't want you falling into sin. He doesn't want you falling into failure. He doesn't want you falling into immorality. And he's going to keep you in such a way that in the very end, in the very end of your days, when you stand before the Father and you enter into his throne room, you are now presented blameless because of what Jesus had done on the cross for you. You are without blame. There's not a blemish on you. There's not a mark or a scar. They don't look at you and go, oh man, but yeah, but look behind his leg. Doesn't exist. You're blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I read a commentator this week who kind of went into a little discussion and when it gets to this with great joy, is this talking about your great joy or his great joy? It's an interesting argument. Nobody really agrees. Everyone really categorically agrees that this is your great joy. But do you appreciate in the book of Ephesians in chapter one that it's his great joy that when he inherits inherits you as the inheritance of the saints, he does so with great joy? 
that God the Father is actually really excited to inherit you someday? Have you ever conceptualized that moment? That as much as you think about getting to eternity and be like, oh, Lord, you, man, I'm in your presence. That God is going, Dave, so excited you're here. This is awesome. I can't, I've been waiting for you to get here. I've been waiting to show you the truth of how much I love you. I can't wait to show you everything. That God's going to have tremendous joy for you in that moment too. And we need to know that. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you with it blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he reaches this, this moment that is as a result of God's keeping, as a result of his able to present us in this blameless fashion. Jude has no choice now but to turn to worship, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of this is done through Jesus. All of it's done through Jesus. And then you come to an interesting point. Not often will I say something weird like in the original languages, but here it comes. In the original languages, there's not a verb here. The word be doesn't exist. We just don't know how to read it in English. That in the original, it actually says something closer to, to the God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And, and the picture that you need to see in Jude is that this is probably less of a letter and it's more of a sermon. And, and as Jude is wanting to worship God, he's, he's coming to the end of, God, you're incredible that you would keep us as we engage you and try to engage unbelievers as we work out this contending for the faith. Is you'll keep us in that and you'll hold us and you'll present us blameless. I, I can't do anything but worship what you've done. I can't do anything but worship how great you are. And Jude gets to the end of this and all he can yell is, Glory! And majesty! And dominion! And authority! That's what Jude does. He just yells. God's glory! Glory be to God! Glory! And the interesting thing about the word glory, firsthand, is that most of you don't know what it means right? People go, glory, what does it mean? I don't know. It's like glory. You read it in a, in a theological dictionary and it'll tell you it's the effulgent radiance of his weight. Well, good. That's helpful. Man, his effulgent radiance. I'm just going to cling to that today. That's going to be my hope. I'm just, his effulgent radiance. Let's go with that. Glory comes from the Greek word doxa. Doxa is the original word actually gets to the idea of a weightiness. So if you're going to ascribe glory to something, you're going to ascribe a, a weightiness to it. It's, there's a heaviness to it. There's, and, and it's ascribed to this idea of this, this beautiful weight. So if you're going to ascribe glory to something, if you're going to ascribe glory to God, you're going to say, man, it's just so heavy. It's just so awesome. It's just more than I can get my mind around. He's glorious. By the way, glory is ascribed only to God. You will not find glory ascribed to anything else. It's a God word. 
God is glorious. So at the end of this, he goes, man, God is so weighty. He's so important. He's so beautiful. Glory. Glory. And majesty. Man, majesty. His transcendence. He's above all things. He's in everything. He's, he's majestic. And, and you can't help but just burst. And man, he's majestic. And dominion. He's got absolute power. He can do anything he wants. He rules everything. And authority. He's sovereign. He's over everything. And you see this moment where Jude just kind of blows up in these, these great words ascribing weightiness and power and authority to God. Because see, God could use anything he ever wanted. And he chooses us. God could use anything in the whole universe to declare his goodness. And he chooses us. He could choose anything. And he chooses us. Because he's glorious. And he's majestic. And he's got dominion. And he's got authority. And it doesn't start today. And it won't keep, it started before all time, it's current, and it's forever. That as we walked through Jude 1, we saw that he's taken care of your past, he's got your present, he's got your future. Why? Because before all time, he was there. Now, he's got it covered. Forever, he's got it going on. Amen. So as this doxology, which came on importance in the early church, as it would be read, the, the psalter, the reader would read, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Your only response to that is to go, amen. It's to join in. Amen is the statement that says, I agree with that. I agree. Man, that's incredible. That's incredible that God would do that for us. It's incredible that he could keep us. It's incredible that he'll present us. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite quotes is a quote from a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. Kevin says this, there's a danger that our Christianity is becoming all imperatives and no indicatives. I had to look those words up, by the way. All about what we need to do and little about what he did for us. That we can make our faith all about what we need to do and too little do we make about what he did for us. This passage makes it really clear. It's an indicative passage that our faith is all about what he did for us. It's all about what he did for us. And, and so as Jude comes to the end of this book and he's, he's challenging you to contend for the gospel and you, you would say, how am I going to do it? 
How, how would I contend for the gospel? How would I live my life in such a way that would proclaim and demonstrate the gospel? How do I do it in a world that isn't claiming you? How do I do it in a world that will war against me? How do I do it in the midst of people who are living lives that are incredibly sinful while claiming your name? How do I do it in a world that is incredibly sinful? People who don't even claim your name? This is swimming upstream. And the answer is, yeah, it is. Before the beginning of time, God knew that this is what you'd be called to. He knew it'd be really, really hard and complex. He knew that we would have a challenge and we'd have to ask ourselves, how are we gonna do it? And the answer is, it's already been done for us in Jesus. So we're gonna trust Jesus. And we're gonna stake our lives on Jesus. And we're gonna speak Jesus. And we're gonna walk Jesus. And we're gonna get made fun of for Jesus. And we're gonna be challenged for Jesus. And we're gonna be rubbed wrongly for Jesus. We'll get thrown out of some places for Jesus. We'll be called some names for Jesus. It's not gonna be really politically correct in the coming years to say Jesus. And yet we will. By his power. Because he is gonna keep us from stumbling. And because he is gonna present us blameless before his glory with great joy. And so we'll worship him because he's the only way we'll do it. Let me pray for us. Father, it is only because of Jesus that we can enter into your throne room. We can come so boldly and confidently because of the blood of Christ. Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you for giving us Jesus Christ and that in him we have imputed righteousness. We received his righteousness and we imputed our sin into him. He received our sin. Father, as we strive to live lives to contend for the gospel, to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel, Father, we're gonna receive a lot of opposition. But in light of who we are in Christ, and in light of the reality of judgment, we're gonna press on, and we're gonna trust you, and we're gonna find ourselves in you, because we're gonna believe that you're gonna keep us, and that you're gonna keep us from stumbling, and we're going to believe that you're going to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Something only you have the power to do. Father, I pray that you would blow our minds with what you're capable of doing through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.